Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Anthony Luzzato-Gardner, who is a former ambassador of the United States to the European Union and author of a new book, Stars with Stripes, The Essential Partnership Between the European Union and the United States. So my first question to you, Tony, is... Why did you write the book? What was the inspiration? Well, I thought writing a book would be cheaper than going to a therapist. <laughs> you know, when I left, you recall this very well. When I left in January 2017, I was worried that things would uh, unwind. But I had no idea how quickly and how dramatically things would unwind. And as I was watching the damage to the USEU relationship, I started thinking to myself when I was teaching at the College of Europe in Bruges, you know, somebody should write an account, a non-academic account, of what the US and the EU actually do together. And then I concluded pretty quickly, well, my goodness, perhaps that person should be me. So I started uh, researching this, and one thing led to another, and I decided to write an account with a lot of anecdotes, and hopefully it's readable, of how we work together in nine different areas, simple as that, uh, as, and also provide perhaps a roadmap of how we can fix some of the damage later. Well, what kind of damage do you think the Trump administration has done to the transatlantic uh, relationship? I ask the question because I, I appreciate it's in a different order of magnitude, but we do actually tend to maybe idolize sometimes people like you and me, the transatlantic relationship. And even under previous administrations, it always, always, always hasn't been hunky-dory. There's been many tensions. But from your perspective, the, the Trump administration, what kind of damage has it done in its own way to the, this relationship? So I agree with you, Paul, that um, indeed things were not always smooth sailing in the past. Um, the Iraq war is just one example. But uh, as I recount in my book, I walked into a fairly tough situation. Um, post, um, you know, Snowden, yeah. um, tensions were very high, not only in the member states, particularly in Germany, but also with the EU. I faced uh, a lot of uh, very difficult questioning in the European Parliament and the Commission about our role in, um, in surveillance and so forth. Yeah. So uh, you're absolutely right. But what's happened in the last three years is of a completely different order of magnitude, uh, because this administration has, as I recount in the book, uh, departed from 60 years of bipartisan foreign policy uh, in the sense that it has directly attacked the EU in many ways uh, by, I think, actively seeking a, a breakup by um, not only being a cheerleader for Brexit, but hoping that there would be more Brexits by openly embracing populist Eurosceptic uh, movements within the EU. Um, and, and even more seriously, Paul, of attacking some of the most deeply held, cherished principles of the EU, including the rules-based multilateral trading system. Um, and, uh, and not to mention climate change and the Iran nuclear accord and so forth. So this is a completely different order of magnitude. Um, and the last thing I would say about this, you know, there are many reasons why I think this administration's view about the EU is profoundly misguided. But if I had to point out one in particular, it would be the uh, willful ignorance and blindness of not understanding that the EU is our best partner in dealing with China, particularly in reforming the world trading system. And why this administration doesn't understand the EU actually shares most of our concerns is something that I simply cannot understand. Right. Well, it may not be 
protocol, but it's certainly tradition that ambassadors like yourself, once once they leave their their post, they tend to go home and then kind of vacate the EU scene. Not always, but uh, that's often the case. And I appreciate you don't live in the United States; you live in London, but you you have stayed very much engaged since you left your ambassadorial position uh, with in the EU space and. Uh, and be very critical uh, in a very undiplomatic way, maybe, of, of the administration, as you just explained now, but also of your successor. Was that a, a deliberate strategy of that, or do you find yourself being stuck incrementally into being more and more outspoken about the current state of the U.S.-EU relationship? You're absolutely right, Paul. So there is a tradition, a good, a good tradition, in my view, that you know, when ambassadors leave their post, they typically should be quiet. Uh, and I've thought a lot about it. Um, but I think... I concluded to myself that the situation we're facing is so dramatic and so much is at stake that people do need to speak up and I should speak up as well. Um, again, because this is not a, a partisan issue, um, it is a bipartisan issue. Um, I never felt that I was just representing the Democratic Party when I was in Brussels. None of my predecessors did, by the way. Um, I would have loved to be followed by a uh, successor who believed in the EU relationship, regardless of being Republican, it doesn't matter. And in that case, I would have absolutely been quiet, even if that person legitimately held, held different, some different views. But what happened was that um, in the last couple of years, we had a person in Brussels who um, didn't understand the EU, but immediately started attacking the EU in, in a really dangerous way. Um, and I thought someone needed to respond, and I should respond. And by the way, I was very clear with Gordon Sondland from the first telephone calls we had. I told him, uh, you know, I am going to be in Brussels often. I am going to speak up. I want you to know that. Uh, I will uh, never directly criticize you, uh, him, which, uh, which I didn't. I certainly indirectly criticized through my attacks on the administration. But I told him, I, you know, I was very upfront about that, and uh, I think I, I held to, to the bargain. Okay, well, let's move on a bit. There's a conventional wisdom, as you know, that the transatlantic relationship, prior obviously to the Trump administration, is it was kind of taken for granted, and uh, it ticks along, and it doesn't need too much nurturing. We're friends and not enemies. We're allies. Uh, there's no mutual threat there. So, it, I just wonder whether, when when it does become a matter of discussing serious issues, like when the in the transatlantic trade and investment partnership discussion, TTIP, a few years ago, in which you were intimately involved, then that highlights the, the big differences between the two sides of the Atlantic, doesn't it? We had lots of differences completely. And as I recount in the book, you know, not getting to the finish line in TTIP was a major regret. Now, mind you, you know, I always harbored some doubts as to whether we were actually going to wrap it up, you know, in mm. four years but I thought we could have made more progress. So, you know, we, we failed, to be honest with you. Um, and it did underline the usual differences, including in agriculture. And believe me, I had my frustrations uh, with the EU, which I recount in the book. Um, I thought we also made some serious mistakes, by the way, um, tactical and strategic, which I also recount in the book. So both sides, right? It's not just it's not a blame game. Um, so, you know, and the question is important because um, if Joe Biden becomes president, we're going to have to be ruthlessly realistic about what we can actually get done quickly. I think it's really going to be important to be realistic. And with regard to trade, I think we're going to scale down our, our ambitions and think what can we get done in, in, in literally a question of months. Right. 
Well, to what extent? Well, we're going to move on to, to Joe Biden in a second, because I know you're closely involved in his campaign for election president. Um, but what can the other parts of the political world in Washington, who are more transatlantic, uh, Democrat Party, generally speaking, uh, do to slightly mitigate the, 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 the bad influences, if you like, of Trump and his administration on this relationship? Well, the business community plays an important role. Uh, I know they have spoken up, uh, certainly about the transatlantic relationship, the importance of the trade relationship. I've been a bit disappointed. I have to be brutally honest. Um, I think more leaders could have been more outspoken uh, publicly. That is, you mean business leaders? Yeah, business yeah, leaders. Right. Because they are the only ones who really can hold some sway with this White House. I haven't seen a lot of it. I know some stuff has happened beyond, you know, behind the scenes. Um, but it should have been more public. Um, people have been, you know, overly. Uh, Perhaps worried about um, the retaliation that they may have suffered. But again, so much is at stake here that I would have liked to see more people exercise a bit of leadership in a moment of crisis. Do you have any reason to know why these corporate leaders did not come out more and be more outspoken? Uh, the kind of reflex uh, default of corporate leaders is say, well, we don't do politics. We're there to service our customers, our shareholders, even our employees. We don't do politics. Is that uh, a fair uh, justification defense of the corporate world? No, there, there are ways and ways of doing this. So I agree that, you know, businesses should not be playing politics, but I think there's a way of saying, look, um, there's certain basic principles at stake. Um, here's why free trade is good, here's why free trade creates jobs, um, and here's why when we are looking to do free trade agreements, for example, we really should be working more with uh, allies like the European Union that does, share, that does share most of our values and principles. And that includes also working with them, as I mentioned, on uh, improving the dispute settlement body and getting the Chinese to agree uh, on some basic principles on market access, about fighting uh, subsidization and so forth. So there, there are lots of messages I think that could have been made publicly that weren't, um, you know, that weren't partisan. Uh, and remember, free trade has been a more a Republican issue yeah. <laughs> for many years than a Democratic issue. So, and, but this is an important point because often people will say, oh, well, you know, you're being uh, partisan in what you're saying. My answer often is, in fact, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. You know, uh, I, I am I'm fighting for certain principles, actually, that shouldn't be Democratic or Republican. Well, I, again, push back a bit, Tony, because there's this, again, you, a lot of people kind of maybe idolize the, the Democratic Party, especially in the past three and a half years. But in the area of trade, where you're very knowledgeable, uh, as you just hinted, the Democratic Party can be quite protectionist. They're, they're not gung-ho champions of free trade all across the board necessarily. So um, if, if there were to be a change of regime toward the end of the year in, in the United States, it doesn't necessarily mean be this new rallying cry for big new trade deals, would that? No, you're right. So the Democratic Party has had a mixed um, record on, on, on free trade. But I think there's, there's a bit of difference between the different candidates who are running is for the Democratic Party nomination. So between a, a uh, Elizabeth Warren and a Bernie Sanders on one hand, who perhaps would struggle to approve of any free trade agreement with any region of the world, from what I can tell, 
um, you know, there's, there's a lot of difference between a Joe Biden, who I think in many senses would go back to a Obama-esque view that, uh, you know, free trade is good. And, you know, we tried to get the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership Agreement over the line. Um, and uh, I think we'd return in many senses to what uh, Obama was trying to do and make a better case. And remember, Obama identified quite correctly early on that if we press ahead with free trade, that has to be accompanied by a, uh, a, a better job, not only communicating why free trade is good, but actually protecting people who are displaced by globalization and free trade. So the short answer is, you know, there are Democrats who do believe in free trade. Obama is one of them. I think you know, Joe Biden clearly is another. Uh, and the EU is, is certainly the place to start for all the reasons that have you know, been discussed many, many times. It should be easier to get to a deal with the EU than with many other parts of the world. Okay. You may remember when you were ambassador, I gave you very generously, I may say, a, a, a book called The Narcissism of Minor Differences, How America and Europe Are Alike by a chap called Peter Baldwin. Now that book is, is uh, almost 10 years old and one of his main, well, the main principle behind the book is that the commonalities uh, are, are greater than the differences between the United States and Europe. Ten years on now, 2020, do you think that those commonalities are still very much there or have the two continents diverged much more dramatically? I cite that book, by the way, Paul, in, uh, in my book. Is, uh, it did make an impression on me. And I think uh, he's quite right. Is a, a lot of rhetorical... Uh, a lot, a lot has been made about the divergences when, in fact, the divergences are smaller. Um, certainly, though, they have increased, and no doubt, in the last three years. Um, fundamental concerns about uh, not only this president, but where the United States is going. Um, some of them can be fixed. To some extent, we can, we can go back to the, where the relationship was. Um, but clearly, we've suffered a, a lot. Um, and hence, you know, the Chinese have been trying to, um, to fill in the void that the United States has left. Uh, to some extent, they've been successful. I think they'll struggle over the long term. Um, but uh, there, there's no doubt that the rift is wider than it was three years ago. Right. Well, we're going to devote the last part of this chat in a second to, as I said earlier, to, to, to Joe Biden, his campaign. But before you do that, I can't resist a, a quick question about Brexit. You say in, in your book that um, there's no doubt, I'm quoting, uh, the exit of the UK will weaken the European Union. Can you amplify what you mean by that? How will the departure of the UK from the EU weaken the EU itself, not just the UK? Well, you're probably the leading expert on this, Paul. <laughs> yeah, right. um, I, witnessed, I witnessed some of it, you know, um, and I think every, most people in the EU would agree that the UK provided such uh, important input, intellectual input, philosophical input uh, and direction. And I would even argue that many of the things that the, the EU finally uh, espoused in terms of uh, free competition and uh, transatlanticism uh, and many other things besides were a direct result of the UK's input. But more specifically, during my three years on the ground here, I saw that many achievements of the EU, together with the United States, such as sanctions, were, were a direct consequence of the important input of the UK, diplomatic input of the UK. Shorn of the UK, 
the EU, in some cases, will be a less effective actor. And not just in military and security, by the way, but also in law enforcement and other areas, and sanctions, perhaps, is, is, is another. Um, so the list is rather long. And I think, you know, probably that's not a too controversial a thing to say, that, you know, the EU27 uh, will be uh, less effective in some areas than the EU28. Right. Okay. Well, let's move on then to to Vice President Biden. Um, as we all know, he's kind of stuck in his basement and he can't do the classic traditional campaigning, which he's uh, very good at by, by common agreement. So how do you think he's doing? What, what can he do between, well, as long as this lockdown uh, occurs to, to do effective campaigning? It's a real challenge. Um, it's a real challenge. So he is, to some extent, stuck in his basement, his home in Delaware. Of course, he's doing a lot when he's there. He's on television often. He's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the campaign is issuing lots of policy papers. I'm involved in some of them on practically every topic under the sun. But he is a retail politician who loves going out there, pressing the flesh. Uh, and he gets a lot of energy from seeing people and uh, he does very well. So this is a, is, is a uniquely difficult time for a politician like him. And on the other hand, you have... Donald Trump, who clearly understands the, the uh, utility of being before the cameras every day yeah. uh, and being president, and uh, at least until recently doing a lot of press conferences about the crisis. Um, so this is, this is a real challenge. There's no obvious solution uh, because I don't see the situation going back to normality anytime soon. Um, he can, you know, build up uh, interest for the campaign in many different ways, not only on the topics, but also, for example, announcing his running mate, which perhaps may come soon. Mm -hmm. um, he's got a slew of endorsements, which have been very helpful and given him a lot of, um, you know, publicity. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the short answer, Paul, is, is this is a really, really tough time uh, if he cannot get out and press the flesh. Right. So what is your, your best guess on the, his running mate pick? Who are you putting money on? <laughs> <laughs> I have no inside information. I really don't. Um, you know, look, he's already announced that he wants to appoint a woman, which I think makes a lot of sense. I think people have identified a few very qualified women from the key states, which clearly we have to win. Those names have been much discussed. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I, I really don't know. I've, uh, I was on a call recently um, that we did, sort of Democrats abroad, with Amy Klobuchar, who did, was terrific. Um, I actually never met her, um, but she's one of the candidates that is much talked about. Right. It's, how much is it still a question of money? This kind of uh, caricature that we have outside the United States that U.S. politics is all about money. I did hear recently on a, a rival uh, podcast that uh, Trump is managing to to uh, bring into the co his coffers substantially larger amounts than uh, the Joe Biden is. Does, does money still play uh, an influential role, a key role, critical role? If it, can you outspend your, your rival and make a, make a huge difference? Well, look what happened to Mike Bloomberg. You know, he spent roughly $600 million and um, didn't make much headway in the Democratic primaries. And then remember that Hillary Clinton outspent <clears throat> Donald Trump three to one, approximately and lost. So yeah, I, I don't think that money is determinative in our system, but it certainly makes a difference. There's no question about it. If you want to build a ground campaign, boots on the ground in many, many states, and buy ad time on television, all of which is expensive, you need the money. 
The good news is that uh, Biden announced a terrific March uh, fundraising of about 46 million, I believe, which was uh, a great number. So the money is coming in. Having said that, you're right. You know, the uh, Republican National Committee uh, has a significant war chest. Uh, a lot of very wealthy um, Americans, close friends of his, have announced intentions to provide a lot of cash to his campaign. I think, quite frankly, because they see it as a great return on investment. Right. You know, believe that uh, they write huge checks, and uh, if uh, environmental label, labor standards are weakened, yeah. you know, so what's a hundred million dollars between friends? And taxes uh, go down as well. Maybe that helps. Well, taxes as well. go down. Regulations go down. Probably think this is this is a good investment. Right. A final question then. Uh, the most impossible question of this entire conversation. Uh, what is your prediction for the uh, result in November? How how confident or how anxious are you that that Vice President Biden will actually win this election? Well, you know, Paul, I've been cautiously optimistic for uh, quite a long time, actually, even when it was not fashionable to be optimistic. So even in the dark days of, you know, November, December, January, when people thought, oh, my God, you know, um, uh, you know, Joe Biden doesn't have a chance. I thought, yes, he does have a chance. I think he's going to spring back. He did, thanks to South Carolina. Um, so I think this is winnable. I've always thought this is winnable, um, but it's uh, certainly far from a slam dunk. I mean, no one thinks that. No one thinks this is going to be easy. Um, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be bloody. We know what Donald Trump is capable of. Um, I think that uh, we have better than a, an even chance to win this, uh, but it's going to require um, supporters, particularly Democrats, uh, Democrats abroad. I'm trying to convince that this is a pivotal a pivotal moment in American, I would even argue, argue global history. Sounds like it's mm -hmm. exaggeration, but so much is at stake yeah. for American civil liberties, uh, global warming, the list goes on, right? And if Donald Trump has another four years, the world is really going to look like a different place. Um, so I I've decided to get involved in the campaign day one because we have to win it. Right. Well, all we have to leave it there, Tony. Tony right. Randall, thank you very much for your time. And Tony's book, Stars with Stripes, is out now. Thank you, Tony. Thanks a lot.